Dr. Shankara Chetty is a family general medical practitioner in South Africa. Dr. Chetty has considerable experience with outpatient treatment for COVID-19, having treated so far some 4,000 patients. He holds a degree in medicine and surgery and also has advanced education in genetics, advanced biology, biochemistry and microbiology. Omar Khan is a recognised consultant who is presently working with Dr. Shankara Chetty to increase awareness of Dr. Chetty's breakthrough eighth-day protocol and the analysis of COVID claims. Omar has been instrumental in bringing the early treatment paradigm to Sri Lanka, where early outpatient therapy is now officially endorsed. First of all, thank you so much, Dr. Chetty and Omar, for joining us. Thank you. Omar, you brought Dr. Chetty to our attention. You've worked with some of the most eminent early treatment champions in the world. What makes Dr. Chetty's work so distinctive? Well, I was gobsmacked first when I heard a guest you've had on, Dr. Peter McCullough, um, in his Senate testimony point out that COVID is highly treatable. This, for me, like a lot of other uh, non-medical people, was a shock because the narrative we've been fed was that you wait till you get sick, turn blue in the face, and then hope for the best in um, ICU. And then, hearing that it was treatable, I began to look at the various protocols, and they have much to commend them. And most of them focus on the early viral stage. Um, As I've learned, COVID is a biphasic or triphasic disease, viral, then inflammatory, and then going into thrombosis. And I heard that uh, there was a gentleman called Dr. Chetty, who had dealt with perhaps the most aggravating thing any early treatment pioneer uh, or champion is facing, which is so-called controversial uh, drugs. They're not really controversial. They've been made controversial. They're either off-label or it has suited various vested interests uh, to say that after 3.5 billion doses somehow with humans, not horses, that somehow uh, we have to be worried about them. But this was an issue. And then I learned that Dr. Chetty's protocol required no controversial drugs, nothing was off-label, and therefore there was no reason that any jurisdiction could not immediately apply it. And the second thing that makes it distinctive, though of course he'll uh, tell us all about it, um, is that he had a breakthrough insight which nobody else uh, that I've come across, I'm sure there are others who have had it, but the breakthrough insight was that at around the eighth day, or actually on the eighth day, the illness goes through uh, a very different phase, and you're no longer treating a viral condition. And therefore, some of the things that were highly effective during the viral phase uh, are not effective. And this is usually when the oxygen saturation plunges And I was fascinated that he had an E equals MC squared kind of uh, realization about the change in the nature of the illness and therefore a paradigm shift in how to treat it. And he had found ways of doing so that even the most ardent naysayer 
would have a hard time saying, oh, you can't use that. These are efficacious, readily available, very affordable therapeutics. And that combination to me was astounding. Dr. Chetty, so what was the real breakthrough and what have been the results? Uh, Mike, the the breakthrough uh, came uh, very early on in the pandemic last year. Uh, I took the opportunity to examine patients myself and I noticed that on the eighth day, the disease changed completely. So uh, it was the first time that uh, I realized I'm dealing with a biphasic illness that is non-linear and has little or no correlation in severity between the two phases. I've had patients have very mild symptoms of viral illness in the first phase and got acutely ill in the second phase. And some had severe viral illness but never progressed into the second phase. The switch always occurred on the eighth day, exactly one week after the onset of illness. Uh, So the pathology uh, or the pathogenesis of these two phases was completely different. Uh, The initial phase consisted of a typical viral illness uh, affecting either the upper respiratory tract or the GIT in typical fashion, and a majority of patients showed signs of recovery by the sixth or seventh day. Uh, The second phase was triggered on the eighth day, uh, very suddenly, uh, and always on the eighth day, by what I considered a hypersensitivity reaction because of the differences in severity of the trigger itself. And this hypersensitivity, if untreated, progressed rapidly to hyperinflammation, which a lot of the world had seen in hospitals, and if again untreated, uh, progress to hypercoagulability. So uh, the importance was the eighth day, uh, understanding the trigger for this, and uh, treating appropriately. Uh, Through the uh, second wave, it became uh, very apparent that this trigger of hypersensitivity was initiated by the spike protein. So what we have here is a viral illness, that is relatively self-limiting that all the symptomatic patients go through. Uh, on the eighth day, the spike protein triggers a hypersensitivity type of reaction. Uh, on that day, uh, the reaction is classified as mild, moderate or severe or non-existent in those who are not hypersensitive. And if that hypersensitivity is not dealt with immediately, timelessly and aggressively, we'll have progress of this illness into hospitalizations. So I use that modality to uh, come up with a treatment toolbox and a protocol, which, uh, as we know, for hypersensitivity, uh, akin to a bee sting, uh, antihistamines, Montelukast, vitally important, and, of course, steroids uh, from the eighth day to suppress that reaction. I was aware of the coagulation problems that would uh, arise from this, and so anticoagulants became important The chemical mediators released by hypersensitivity dictated the kind of medication I would use. Uh, Histamine, leukotrienes, platelet activating factor. And so the treatment uh, followed the understanding. So it became clearly evident uh, very early on with the results I was getting. uh, Speed to recovery being vitally important in uh, anything you, any, any illness you treat. And the quicker the speed to recovery will determine the mechanism. 
And uh, so very early on, I realized that we are not dealing with a COVID pneumonia like the rest of the world has been suspicious of. We are dealing in the second phase with a hypersensitivity pneumonitis, a allergic and allergic reaction in the lungs triggered by hypersensitivity to an allergen, which is spike protein. And if treated as such, we get quick clinical recovery. Uh, as to the uh, as to the uh, recoveries that I've had and the 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 uh, the the, uh, the, the uh, protocol itself, I've now I'm now approaching seven thousand patients that I I have examined personally myself, and a few hundred more that I've treated over the telephone. In all these patients that I've treated, I have not had a single death. I am yet to hospitalize a patient, even though I've seen some critically ill patients who presented late. Uh, all these patients that presented vary in age and comorbidity, which made no difference to the outcome as such. And in all of them, I have managed to negate the necessity for oxygen, as I found that using this modality causes the oxygen saturations to improve within a few uh, hours to a few days, depending on the severity and time of presentation of these patients. So in all, I've had no deaths, no hospitalizations, and I've negated the need for the use of oxygen. I think that the biggest problem we experience right now is the understanding or the lack of understanding that we are not treating a COVID pneumonia. This is a hypersensitivity pneumonitis that is resulting in all the mortality and morbidity. And so none of my drugs are off-label. Uh, I have just changed that label. And uh, if you deal with hypersensitivity pneumonitis, the uh, protocol that I use and the drugs in that protocol are absolutely appropriate for that different label. Dr. Chetty, have others tested or validated the efficacy of the eighth-day protocol? And where is it most effective? Uh, look, I've had uh, doctors around the world use the same kind of protocol. I was invited to train doctors in Malaysia and Meghalaya. Uh, I've done a lot of interviews and training camps around the world. We've seen the very same thing at uh, the eighth day uh, being the trigger at which patients start to deteriorate. Uh, the protocol is being extensively used in India. And we've had the same benefits. Uh, a lot of the doctors have seen, all of the doctors have seen the very same outcome. An example, here in South Africa, I've had a doctor uh, treat the first and second wave using the World Health Organization protocols. Uh, he's had one or two deaths for every 10 patients he treated. In the third wave, he became aware of my treatment modality, and I educated him as, uh, about such. Uh, he's been through now over a 1,000 patients in this third wave, and he hasn't had a single fatality. Uh, in, a, in, in looking at speed to recovery, uh, the best he achieved, uh, from uh, we, we looked at two patients treated with different modalities, but presenting with the same severity. Uh, he achieved 70, uh, 70% saturation, improving to 75 over three to five days with the other protocols. With using mine, he found that a patient with 70% sats improved to 85% within four hours. So there's no comparison between the protocols uh, that are being used and the perspective that I use. Uh, the protocol is simple. It can be adapted from a rural setting. I've had doctors in India uh, educate patients in very rural settings about the importance of the eighth day uh, and instituted treatment on those who had worsening on that day with same, the same results, no hospitalizations, no getting deaths. 
and negating the need for oxygen. It's also been used in ICU settings with uh, the very same results. It's decreased the hospital stay, it's decreased the requirement for oxygen, and patients recover relatively quickly. Uh, what lends to the understanding of this modality and, uh, and shows the, the, the benefits in all the patients that I've treated so far and with other doctors that have used the same protocol, we've had no long COVIDs because we've treated it. Long COVID is basically a moderate allergic reaction going untreated and will persist for a very long time. So we've had no long COVIDs and we've had no complications from COVID illness. I can think of someone already, doctor, that um, we, we actually spoke to the other day, Stephanie DeGarry in uh, the US and her daughter had uh, severe uh, injury from uh, being one of their children in the Pfizer trial. But Stephanie herself has long COVID. So we'll have a chat after this. It's um, uh, at this stage, I could probably hug you, but I won't. Uh, Omar, you wanted to share this, I know, with a global audience, but particularly Australia. Why do you want to share it with Australia? What's the urgency? Well, one of the... Um, uh, I'm in touch with a lot of very heroic people in Australia uh, who are trying to stem the tide of this bizarre um, antipathy to early treatment, uh, this crazy infatuation with jabbing everyone on earth, with untested or with so-called vaccines whose safety trials aren't complete and which largely operate as therapeutics, something Dr. Chetty and I have often discussed, that uh, they don't ward off infection, um, they don't stop you transmitting. So what they do is basically act as therapeutics. And if you did a head-to-head comparison with the therapeutic option Dr. Chetty is offering, uh, or others, uh, in fact, offer, uh, in terms of efficacy, in terms of results, in terms of cost, in, ter- in all of those, you would be insane to decide that you would bet the farm on leaky vaccines, especially when new variants emerge that may make them irrelevant. In Australia, I know ivermectin has become a flashpoint. Um, and at least from what I've heard, uh, is difficult uh, to access. So therefore, a protocol that did not require any uh, controversial medication, that would not require uh, approval, because these are drugs that are already widely available. Doctors prescribe them all the time. And it's their understanding of dosage, timing, how they work together through the lens of the eighth-day protocol that is the learning But that's why I was very anxious, because suddenly a lot of these Australian doctors who are waiting or trying to fight the hydroxychloroquine wars or trying to fight the uh, ivermectin wars, important as they are, uh, have another option. They have an off-ramp away from uh, the vaccine madness and can treat people using things they don't need to get authorized and can use at their discretion. And I think the point Dr. Chetty made is worth repeating. When you understand you're dealing with an inflammatory illness, a kind of allergic reaction to the spike protein, then all this medication in his protocol is on-label. It's completely on-label. It's not even an off-label application. And so that was, I suppose, um, my urgency in getting this to... uh, 
Australian uh, medical practitioners and clinicians. But one wonders, though, in Australia, you have uh, the TGA, and um, yes. they're, they're a law unto their own, um, and what might be fine one day, next day you might find it's only suitable for the Melbourne Cup. Um, Omar, you and Dr Chetty are highly interested in the two sciences relating to COVID management. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Um, and, and just uh, one scrap on the earlier, hopefully even in Australia, they're not going to ban all antihistamines or all steroids mm. uh, or all anticoagulants. Um, so we have a fighting chance. Mm. The two sciences emerged in our discussion uh, when we realized that people sometimes say, well, who do I believe? Do I believe uh, the Shankara Chetties and the Peter McCulloughs and the Richard Orsos and the Tess Lorries? Um, or do I believe all of these uh, vetted people from universities and government think tanks and public health officials? And when we looked at where the disagreements were, there was a very simple cleavage. Um, the two sciences are that the public health orthodoxy is using models. They're extrapolating. And what people like Dr. Chetty are doing, and some of the other people I've just mentioned, is they're using data. They're using clinical patient-based data. And I think that when we, instead of worrying about the pedigree of where an idea comes from, we have to ask what data is it anchored in? So to be specific, I'll just give a couple of quick examples. If you look at, was there pre-existing immunity at all to COVID? The models assumed there would be none, and that's why they got the horrific figures. But pretty soon we realized that there was um, pre-existing immunity. This has been around since 2019. We had the Diamond Princess cruise ship float in in February, showing again a very small uh, infection rate among a highly elderly population, which would not have been possible if the uh, Wuhanese graphics and the um, Ferguson models had been anywhere close to reality. So, but you only learn that by studying data. Um, for example, do lockdowns work? It seems very compelling to say, well, shut everything down and spread will be less. But then data shows you that's not happening. And then when you look at why is it not happening, you realize it's an airborne virus. Uh, you realize that uh, every, somebody's going to leave home. They're going to come back and they're going to be in a locked-in environment. And indoors has been proven to be the worst setting for spread. Uh, Dr. Chetty's clinic is an outdoor clinic. Um, and with availing of ventilation and sunlight, not, neither he nor any of his staff have ever been infected over this whole period. Hmm. And indeed, the U.S. CDC said less than 1% transmission happens outdoors. So why are we locking everybody in? And you can go literally from masks to vaccines to any point of disagreement. And you will find that the data is fairly straightforward. It's all pushing in one direction. Whereas the models, they skew. And they skew based on untested assumptions. And that's really the two sciences that we're talking about. The science that's coming out of models and the science that is actually 
glaring at us through adverse effects of uh, vaccines, recovery rates from these kind of protocols, the application of ivermectin uh, for those who use it in the early phases, uh, and all of the rest. So that that's what it is. And so people needn't despair that who do I believe? Go to the data. So even like things like natural immunity being far superior. Uh, these vaccines don't even pretend to provide sterilizing immunity. Natural immunity is long-lived and robust. The Israeli data tells us so. Just, um, and I agree with the natural immunity, The uh, but last night we had one of Australia's top immunologists and um, professors of, of is it, got the entire alphabet behind his name. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, this is how, how nutso it is here at times, he was saying that the uh, synthetic uh, immunity is much better than the natural immunity. Um, could you just quickly tell me uh, what's wrong with that? Or am I just hearing things and maybe I had too many tipples last night? Well, I'll, I'll say my version and then we can maybe Dr. Chetty wants to say mm. something about that. Mm. Um, so, you know, not being a medical person gives me a wonderful uh, example to just look at the world. Um, if that was true, the human race would not have evolved to the point where he could give that opinion. Because for billions of years, we've evolved with viruses uh, and bacteria, and it is natural immunity that has seen us there. The synthetic immunity, I mean, these, maybe there is some synthetic immunity, theoretically, that might appeal, certainly not these vaccines. They've shown they're leaky, high rates of reinfection, um, Places that are the most vaccinated, like Seychelles, UK, Israel, Mongolia, have some of the largest surges. And I will, and you know, one of the things that Dr. McCullough said to me once, he said, look, if there was reinfection from natural immunity, he said, I don't know one real instance, but it would be all over. There would be millions by now. Mm. And we don't have it. So just making that assertion is strange. Dr. Chetty, I mean... Yeah. Look, in all the patients that I've seen so far, uh, over 7,000, I haven't had a single reinfection. So I trust natural immunity. I have no choice. Uh, I have not had a single patient being reinfected with coronavirus. Now, uh, we've been three or four months into the vaccine rollout in South Africa, and I, I average about 30 to 40 patients a day with covid and I'm seeing numerous breakthrough infections with the vaccine. So I think they, the both cannot be compared. Not at all. Uh, I'd like to see whether those that have had infections, breakthrough infections with the vaccine, will have a higher risk of getting a second infection. Because I'm sure the vaccines will impact on their ability to develop a robust natural immunity. Uh, it might, it mm-hmm. might uh, distract their immunity from uh, a robust natural response. Uh, if I also look at the claims around the vaccine, I think they're very disingenuous. Vaccines are meant to uh, decrease or prevent infection and prevent transmission. And that's how they would give us a population or group benefit. Uh, we have seen from many studies that that does not occur. By the, by the, uh, by the uh, acceptance of the CDC, the FDA and the vaccine manufacturers, they all accept that these vaccines do not confer those uh, characteristics. So the, 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 the vaccines claim to prevent severe illness or death. That is a therapeutic benefit, not a vaccine benefit. And it needs to be compared to my therapeutic benefits. Uh, 
Now, I do not expose everyone to the side effects of my treatment. I limit it to patients that are unwell. The vaccine is exposing entire populations uh, to its side effects uh, with uh, purporting to have the same kind of benefit. Uh, so I, I don't think that's, that's uh, fair. The second thing that I think is vitally important when looking at the vaccines is that the prevention of severe illness and death is an individual benefit. It has no group or population benefit. So if you take the vaccine, you have less risk, apparently, of getting severely ill or dying. That does not impact on the person next to you. And so I don't understand why the person next to you is being forced to get you to take the vaccine for their benefit. So yeah. the mandates make absolutely no sense. Uh, another thing that I think we need to we need to be very cautious of, I haven't yet seen an immunologic benefit to all these vaccines. Now, the prevention of severe illness and death is not an immunologic benefit. We know that spike protein is what's causing the mortality and morbidity. So I think that these vaccines are stimulating a measure of tolerance in the vaccinated population through desensitizing them to spike protein because of the exposure through the vaccine. And that tolerance will wane and will require a re-exposure for a re-desensitization. Now, immunologists will tell you that's a dangerous game to play. Uh, if you're allergic to peanuts, I would uh, not wish to desensitize you because it might lead to severe reactions. Mm. So I think we need perspective in what we're doing. What are some of the misunderstandings or mistakes to avoid in applying your protocol? And where can people go to learn more? Look, the, the, I'd say the two things that made the biggest impact on mortality and morbidity Firstly, was the education of the population about the impact of the eighth day and how to plot it and how to be vigilant on that day of re-emergence of symptoms. So the, the, the education was the most vitally important tool in saving lives. Uh, patients present too late and that ends up with long-term injury. Uh, there's no reason for the death, but the morbidity can be prevented if patients present timely. And the second is that on the eighth day, if patients progress into the second phase, you need timely, aggressive intervention. So the speed and aggression with which you address the second phase of the reaction is vitally important in the outcome. So delaying treatment to hospitalization is going to cause a lot of problems. This is something that starts with a hypersensitivity trigger and very quickly cascades out of control. So it needs to be caught at the start. It's at that point that it's easy to solve. Uh, so I think that those, those two things, the education and the timely aggressive intervention, are the most important things. Uh, as to how to get more information on this approach, uh, I have a LinkedIn account, and all my work has been published there. I am in the process of setting up a website so that I can bring all this work that I've done together. Uh, but uh, there are a few platforms that, uh, that field my work. My Google account has fielded my work. So if you just Google Dr. Shankara Chetty Port Edward, you'd see all the different work that I've been doing. Uh, even uh, the Covexit website in Canada has fielded a lot of my work. So it is easily and globally available. It's a simple protocol. 
The perspective is more important than the medication. We all treat these things differently, but the perspective is important in saving lives. And the deferral of treatment is vitally detrimental to this illness. So the mortality and morbidity of COVID was wholly unnecessary. Omar, having brought Dr. Chetty's protocol to doctors in Sri Lanka, what have you found about ensuring it's not lost in translation? And are there other resources to consult on uh, any of these matters that we talked about today? Yeah, well, I think what I found is that people are protocol shopping these days. It's become a new fascination. Oh, this is the uh, this is the Erso protocol. This is the Cori protocol. This is, and that's all wonderful. These are great protocols. What people forget is they then sometimes look at Dr. Chetty's and they say, oh, another protocol. And I've had to keep reminding people, no, Dr. Chetty does deal with the early viral phase and he has thoughts and recommendations, fairly consistent with what his other colleagues um, would recommend. But this is a fundamentally different phase of the illness and requires very different action. And if you don't take that action, that's when your morbidities um, will flare up, your mortality risks will skyrocket. If you recover fully during the viral phase, then you don't have to worry about this. But if on day eight you either have a relapse or you've discontinued to worsen, oxygen saturation plummets, you see any of those indicators, that's when you pounce. So I found that the lost in translation is the it's another protocol. Mm-hmm. I had an argument with a the head of a leading Sri Lanka medical body who said, well, you know, but that's that's too aggressive with the steroids. Well, you see, he was thinking about the use of steroids in the viral phase. He was not looking at the use of the steroids uh, in the inflammation phase uh, to arrest that um, progression. Once he saw that, he said, oh, oh, okay, I understand. And so I think it's just reminding people that this is not for everyone. There's about 20 to 30%, Dr. Chetty says, of people who um, will worsen, who will hit this uh, trigger point. And so you have to be ready uh, and move fast. But I think the other thing is for them not to confuse it and say, well, where, where are the other protocols? Well, they're for a different phase. Uh, on the two sciences, which I think is really important, we've just had a discussion again where we both cited data that the man with the never-ending letters after his name uh, would be hard put to refute because this actually happened. Um, you could go to my uh, blog, which is uncommonwisdom.online, um, and uh, there's an article up uh, right now about uh, the two sciences, and um, that might be a good jumping-off point. There's also, po- it's called Scientific Distortion, A Tale of Two Paradigms, and there are podcasts with people like Dr. Chetty uh, on the site, so that might be another place uh, for people to go um, and get some of this insight. Really interesting. The uh, you mentioned protocols, you know, all these protocols: the Corey Protocol, the um, Zelenko Protocol, the Da 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 Protocol. Everyone's got a protocol. But guess what? They generally work. And the problem is, I find the problem being the authorities, the health officials, don't look at these protocols. The only protocol they have is the jab in the arm. 
and I have a, a, a great deal of uh, concern about that. I think it's, um, it's um, I mean, doctor, first thing they have to do is, you know, they, they say is do no harm. The jab, unfortunately, uh, they can't guarantee that, can they? No, we'll just have them stop fighting about, while they're fighting ivermectin, let them go and look at Dr. Chetty's protocol mm. uh, because it evades that whole uh, controversy. Mm. And I think that's the genius of it. It's mm. simplicity and that it d- removes us from that debate. And that's why I think Australia would be well served to pour some of that passion into that. I think it's fantastic. Uh, Omar Khan and Dr. Chetty, thank you very much. This has been a great conversation. And I'm going to impose on you once again to uh, maybe we can do this in the uh, not too distant future. Thank you very much.